We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal. He is with the Father, and then, or he was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come here to worship, we come here to sing, we come here to say thank you. But if we're, if we're honest, it's sometimes hard. When we look at the world around us and we see conflict and suffering, when we look in our own hearts and see the seeds of discord, it's difficult. But as we read here from the first chapter of 1 John, Jesus Christ has come to reveal to us the truth of God, to call us to a fuller joy and a higher way of being. We pray, God, that as we open your word, our hearts will be attuned to this message. Lord, we think of those people who are perhaps uh, in more difficult places than those of us here this morning. Uh, we think of Alan Engerdahl, and uh, we thank you that he was finally able to get his surgery, and we pray for a speedy and, and continued um, recovery. But Lord, even as we list one name out loud, we know that each person here among us could list many names the trials and struggles of our friends and families. Lord, we just take a moment to lift them up to you. Your word has just told us that there is a way that we can fully share in your joy. We pray that this would be true in each of these places, in each of these people, in each of these relationships. Lord, it is your word that unites us. It is your truth, it is your way that draws us to a place that is higher and mightier and stronger than the things that would divide and destroy. We thank you that we have your word to open together, that we have the songs that, that bring to us the truths of your words that we can sing together. And we pray, God, that there would be um, a transformation in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at the Gospel of John, and this week we're looking at 1 John, the first of the, of the short letters of John that we have in our scriptures. And if you read the Gospel of John last week, you, you can't help but notice that these first uh, four verses in the first chapter of 1 John are reminiscent 
of the first section in the Gospel of John. They're not the same words, but they're very similar description of Jesus and his, uh, his unity with the Father, the, the idea of him being both God and man, fully, fully God and, and uh, fully human, and, and bringing God's presence to the earth. So maybe sometime you can read 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4, as I did, and go back to the Gospel of John and read the first words there, and you'll, you'll see immediately the similarities. Um, it's reminiscent of the same thing. In fact, when we read the letter of 1 John, uh, we find that, that it's, it's almost more of a collection of quotations from the Gospel of John. There's not really any new material here that we didn't already encounter in the gospel. And I don't think it's because John is quoting from his own writing in the gospel. I think it's because this is the way he thought. This is the way he communicated. This is the way he expressed his experiences with Jesus as Jesus' disciple to those people who were listening, whether he was talking or whether he was writing. That's kind of my impression of it because because we see some similarities here. Um, Another thing to notice as we, as we look at 1 John is that in many ways it's almost more similar to poetry than, than letter writing. And so uh, it, it maybe requires a different kind of reading than, than we do at least when we're, we're in Paul's writing. Um, I want to introduce a word that I, for some strange reason, remember from grade 9, uh, literary amplification. Sounds very very distant and, and unimportant and, and, and strange, but it, it's just a word. I'm, I just put it up there because I remember it from, from uh, high school or, or junior high. And uh, what it simply means is this, is you have an idea, a central idea, and then you go off from that idea and explore it in some direction, in some way. And then after you've done that little excursion from the main idea, you come back to the main idea. And then you take that same main idea and explore it into another direction. You come back to the main idea and so on. And uh, it's called literary amplification. You're not really adding a new idea. You're just going out in different directions from the same idea. And that's really what John does in this letter. He, he, he uses that method of, uh, of explaining something. So it's not like Paul's letters, which are usually very first this, you have to understand it, then you get to the next point and the next point in a, in a, and you come to a conclusion. With John's writing, it's more of, a, more of a dwelling in the presence of the idea and just looking at it from different perspectives or using different words to describe it in more detail and then coming back to it. And I think you'll see that as we go along here or definitely if you read 1 John for yourself. And, um, and when I say that he doesn't really have new ideas here, I just want to show that to you for just a second here by looking at two quotations from John's Gospel. So the first one is this one here. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. That's from John chapter 8, verse 12. So keep that in mind. And then uh, we'll look at another quotation from John's Gospel Chapter 3, verse 16, which perhaps you've memorized. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So those are two uh, concepts. Jesus is the light of the world, and God loved the world, and shows that love in his Son. 
that John explored in his gospel. And uh, now, if we, if we go to his letter, we find that, that it's very easily divided into two sections. And uh, the reason is because there's two phrases uh, in, in, the, in verse 5 of chapter 1, just after that introduction that I read, we have um, the phrase, this is the message. And then in chapter 3, verse 11, it begins again, this is the message. And so we should, we should very easily see from that that in the first half of this short letter, he, he's going to explain the message. And then in the second half, he's going to take another look at the message. And he doesn't say this is the first message in the second message. He's indicating to us that it's the same message. But he's going to use two different ideas or two different uh, ways in which to talk about this, this central message. And then we can read the rest of these verses and we find this in... Uh, in chapter 1, he says, This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we see that connection to his gospel where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then in the, in the second half of this uh, short letter, he says, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And I know we're going to expand on that a bit. Uh, about how God is love as well. And so that's reminiscent then of the gospel message where, where John highlights the idea that, that in Jesus Christ, God loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his son. And so these are the two messages, but they're really one message. And so uh, if you, if you want to draw, if you want to outline the gospel of John, we can do it this way. We have the idea of light, and he kind of walk, goes around and around with that idea. And we have the idea of God is love, and he goes around and around with that idea. And uh, so sometimes when we just take an individual verse and quote it from 1 John, uh, we don't get the context that it's describing part of how God is light or God is love. And that's kind of important to understand those individual verses, to put them into that context of what John is doing. So let's take some samples. Let's start off with a few samples. In the first half, God is light. What do we learn? We can sample from what we are, where we already started in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we live in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. And then again, if we go a little bit further, further into the chapter, or into the section, the first section in chapter 2, if anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates his fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light as, and does not cause others to stumble. We begin to see here the connection between the two, uh, the two here, but let's sample from the second half of the book in, uh, in chapter 3 and following about love. So if we, if we start in verse 16 of chapter 3, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well 
and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Again, I'm just taking a sample out of that section. You need to read the whole chapters to put that all into its context and understand its full meaning. And then in chapter 4, we have another sample here about the description of love. Uh, Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. You can see how this is, this is uh, several uh, verses or even the next chapter, and it's, it's really just saying the same thing again with different words. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and His love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us His Spirit as proof that we are living in Him and He in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and, have, and now testify that the Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. As I was looking at these two uh, sections that John refers to as, as the message, I, I was struggling for a while to understand the connection because, you know, there are certain things that go together just naturally, right? So, um, for example, bread goes with jam. Uh, it's, a, it's a common phrase, bread and jam. I grew up on bread and jam. I wouldn't eat anything else. And campfires go with marshmallows, uh, just obviously, uh, they, they go together. But I was struggling to understand how does light go with love? I've never made that connection. I've never, I've never put those two things together as the same thing or obviously connected to each other. And so I, I had to read John again and, and maybe another time after that. And, and just with this question in my mind, it's clear that John thinks they go together. Uh, they're part, there are different ways of expressing the same message. And... Um, I don't know why it was so dense, because when I saw it, it's really incredibly obvious. But I'll show you what I saw. And so you can see that I'm doing literary amplification here, right? Uh, This is the third time through the same stuff in this one message. So we're just going to take another tangent out from the central theme and come around back to it. So let's look at this for a minute. Light. What does light do? What are some things we know about light? One thing that we know is that light purifies. It has a purifying effect. Um, just yesterday, uh, uh, Colleen and Doug and I were in uh, Big Al's Aquarium Store in Edmonton, and uh, we were toying with the idea of should we change my freshwater aquarium into a saltwater. We were looking at the equipment we would need to buy and how much many hundreds of dollars it would cost to do that. We decided not to, uh, but we were looking at it. And uh, one of the things that we would, ha- we would probably have to buy is a light filter. And so it's a, it's a device that you pump the water through and it purifies the water with light. And it's a very effective way of, of, uh, of keeping the water clean and pure. And of course you probably know that because you might have a hot tub and someone's trying to sell you a light filter for your hot tub. You pump the water through a light and it, it takes all the, uh, the things that could make you sick out of the water and purifies them. And we all know that just from the last year and a half. We know that, uh, that even viruses have a tough time when we're out in the sunlight 
and, uh, and, and the, the light has a pure and fine effect. Um, if you've ever done laundry and don't have a wash line, you should get one because your white sheets will turn much whiter if you hang them out in the sun. So light has a pure purification effect. And so, um, of course, I didn't just come up with that on my own, but we can look in 1 John chapter 1. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So he's describing here the purification, the cleansing properties of being in the light of God's love, of having fellowship with God and with one another. He says that it purifies us. In the presence of Jesus, our sins are purified from our lives. We're going to get into that a little bit more, but let's look at another property of light. This is so obvious, of course. Light illuminates. So let me tell you another story. This one's a little bit more disgusting. But, uh, but it's not yesterday, because we took the dog with us yesterday. But on a previous occasion, uh, probably more than one, but I remember, uh, we'd left the dog at home in the house. And we'd gone, gone somewhere early in the morning, come back after dark. And with the dog in the house all day, I knew that it was quite likely that the dog had left a mess somewhere in the house. That happens. We... we we sometimes leave the dog outside, sometimes inside, but, but it was late and I just wanted to go to bed and lie down. I didn't want to clean anything up. And so I didn't turn on any lights. <laughs> now I know that's dangerous. Now the dog doesn't usually do that in the high traffic areas, finds a corner somewhere, but I know it's dangerous to walk to bed after the dog's been in the house all day with no lights on. But I also knew that if I turned the lights on, I'd see the mess, and no matter how bad I wanted to go to bed, I would clean it up. If I didn't see it, I could pretend it wasn't there. You see the effect that light has? When we see what's wrong, clearly and obviously in the light, we really can't just leave it alone. We have to try to clean it up. And that's exactly what John talks about here in uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of his commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates his fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates his fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. In the light, our sin cannot hide, and we're motivated to clean it up. So John... Um, in the first half just takes this theme of light and comes back to it several times and just goes around and around just exploring the ideas and thoughts and passions that come out of, out of this central theme that, that God is light and Jesus is the expression of that light in this world. Now, if we go on to love, the second half of this small letter, um, we can learn some things too that are are quite obvious. Love leads to life. 
Now, that, that should be obvious. You, you know the end of this story. A young man and a young woman meet and fall in love. What is the natural outcome of that progression? Children. Life. New life. Now hopefully there's steps and processes in between there. But that's what happens. Now that's maybe oversimplifying it. But, but we, we know this even our, in our own experience. Uh, when, we feel, uh, when we feel unloved. We can only. It's like the lights are out in our life. There's no life there. There's no newness. We don't have ambition to do anything, to start anything, to create anything. But when we feel fully loved and accepted, uh, it seems like it's limitless. Uh, The the world opens up. And and I think, uh, obviously, we could go on for a long time. But but let's just read what John says in chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers... It proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Now he goes right to the extreme of hatred and murder. Because he wants to expose the truth. But the the small steps that we take when we turn towards love or towards bitterness, if we just follow that path, that's where it does lead. That's where it ends. That's what it produces. Love produces life. Hatred produces death. And so uh, we see that here, um, even in our small movements in our own hearts. There's another thing that love does, and... and, uh, there was a TV show made about this. I don't know if you've ever, ever done what I've done before. Have you ever gone to the airport at the arrivals? And instead of standing, you know, in... in you know how people, they kind of... Sometimes there's a, a, an older couple, possibly grandparents, waiting for grandchildren to arrive, or, or, or a, a single person, a man or a woman, possibly waiting for their spouse, or... Or, or little, you know, a father with three children. Maybe their mother's coming off the plane. And, but everyone kind of stands separate and they kind of mope around. And it's not... Have you ever gone to the other side and looked at the faces of all the people? It's amazing because, because I don't know what's going on in their minds beforehand. But when, when their loved one is visible through their arrival's door, they light up. All their inhibition, all their, they run, they scream, they cry. They don't care what everyone else is doing or thinking or whether they bump into people. They just light up with life. Love brings, love opens us up. And, uh, and I think what John is telling us is, 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 you know, that's a human perspective. But, but love opens us up to God. And, and we know that too, don't we? Who of us has not experienced a situation where someone is cold to God. Maybe they're a Christian, but they're just not interested, or maybe they've never turned to Jesus. And, and, and if someone just truly loves them, their hearts open up to the possibility that maybe God loves them too. I've seen it over and over and over again. Love opens us up to the possibility of God's love. And John talks about that a little bit in chapter 4. Beginning in verse 11. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, surely 
We surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to its full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we are living in him and he is in us. It's not magic. It's logical. When you love one another, it opens your hearts to God's love. It becomes possible to know God in the context of loving one another. It brings up in us the desire and the strength to know God and love God. And it defeats the power and the strength of division and discord and bitterness. So what do these two things have in common? How can we put this together? If you read 1 John, he's, he's from beginning to end talking about the struggle with the dark side, with our sin. And what he's telling us is that in the presence of my son, sin has no power. In the presence of my son, whether you understand him as light or as love, in God's presence, in the presence of Jesus Christ, sin loses its power. That's a powerful statement. I truly believe that's what, God, what John is getting at here. The churches he was writing to were divided. We're going to get into that next week in 2 John. Uh, but he was trying to give them a message that would, that would bring them back together. And this was his message. Get close to Jesus. Because in his presence, sin cannot stand. It loses its power. So what's the, what's the application? I'm going to give you three things. I don't usually do three-point sermons, but I'm going to give you three quick points that you can take home from this. Applications. Stop condemning and love. We have a, I shouldn't say we, I should speak of myself, I don't know your heart. I have a tendency to want to point out your sin. In the mistaken assumption that if I point it out in the light of my wisdom, we can conquer your sin, but it doesn't work. In the light of Jesus' presence, you'll clean it up. So, so instead of condemning one another, let us love one another with the love that Jesus gives us. And when we do that, our sin will become ugly to us. When we bring one another into the light of the love of God as we love one another, it will become obvious. I remember my dad, he, I, I might have told you this story before, but um, he was a pastor. I was in high school. And we started having this, this couple over. And, and I remember because, because um, I was going to say I had to. It wasn't that much of a hardship. But the children were younger and I had to play with them when they were over. It wasn't hard though. They were good kids. We, enjoyed, we, we had some fun together. But I remember that because of that. And, um, and they were interested in Jesus and they were having Bible study and they started coming to church. 
And the pressure was on my dad, the pastor, to point out to this couple that they were coming to church and wanting to take communion and stuff, but they weren't married. And so the, the, the pressure was on to point out the sin. And I remember my, my father stood against that and said, no, as a church, we love these people. And it wasn't more than a month or two later, and they came to my dad with what they thought was the craziest idea. We've been living together for 12 years. Do you think we should get married? They'd never heard of such a thing, but they'd been reading their Bible, and they'd been being loved by other Christians. And it became obvious. But I know other people in the church didn't know them as well, but they were in our house a lot. Even as a teenager, I could see that if the, if the sin had been confronted, they would have left and not come back to the church. Now, of course, I can't predict what didn't happen. I don't know for sure. Pretty sure with that couple. They'd been hurt by the church many times as children and were very reluctant to come back. They figured they'd get hurt again. But they came and they were loved. And they had this weird idea. To them, it was just like, never heard of such a thing. But do you really think after 12 years we should like stand up and say vows? Isn't it obvious? My dad said, well, let's open the Bible and let's see. So that's what I mean. Let, let us, it, it's not that we're taking sin lightly. We're, it's just that we're, we're using God's method to work on sin. When it's in the light of Jesus' presence, it does not stand. It's obvious. When it's, when it's in the context of light, of love, it, it loses its power because it's dragging us in a different direction away from love. And it just becomes the most obvious thing to us in those, in those circumstances. So this is maybe an interesting application, but I would just say it this way. Read John and then read it again. First John, I mean, and then read it again. Um, that, that's the way it is. If you think about this in the context of, uh, I don't know if any of you have, have gone to symphony orchestra. I could ask you to put up your hands, but that would reveal things. Put, it, put you in the light. You know, I don't listen to symphony. Um, I don't have CDs. But when I get the chance, I go to a symphony orchestra live. Because it's an amazing experience. And, and you should experience that sometime in your life. To see 100 or 200 instruments playing together in perfect unity and harmony. But the point I make by this is most symphonies are actually very simple pieces of music. In fact, if you, if you read the liner notes or, or whatever in, on, on, on it, very often the composer, whether they're French or German or English, uh, they've taken a local folk song, a little tune, a short musical phrase from a local folk song, and then they've just taken that little phrase and then they just explore it with the flutes and then they explore it with the violins and then they explore it with the, with the tuba and then they explore it with the piano. And, and always coming back and always circling around that central, very simple usually, musical phrase. And our hearts respond to that. And we go to a symphony and there's no action and there's no special effects. It's just all these, mu- all these instruments that we can barely see from our cheap seats in the back. And, and, and yet it's a transcendent experience. And it's very similar to the frustration you feel when your children or grandchildren bring the same book to your lap for the 50th time in the same week. You see, they're learning. That's how humans learn. What they're doing is in their minds, it's not the same story every time you read it. Their imaginations are alive and active. And it's a different story every time you read it. 
So you look at the page and you read the simple words, but in their minds, there's a whole thing going on. And then you turn the page and then there's a whole thing going on. They're, they're, they're learning through, um, through literary amplification, to use a technical term. But that's how we learn. That's how we do it. And so I say, read John. Read 1 John. It doesn't mean, matter if you don't fully understand it. It's not an argument. It's the words of God that you want to sit inside. And then read it again. Maybe take a week. It's only five chapters and read it every day. Or maybe if you can't manage that, read one chapter a day and take two days off. Read it. God can work these truths into your life far better than I can. I only stand here to try to get you there. It's not in my light. It's not in my words that these things happen. It's in the light of the presence of Jesus Christ and He is alive and active in His Word. So open it up. And then, number three, and we'll be done. Stop fighting sin. Now that might sound like a terrible thing for a pastor to say. And I put it that way, hopefully, to jar you back awake at the end of this sermon. But the truth is, I don't mean that. (laughs) What I really mean is the way you're fighting won't work. It won't have the effect. The way to actually fight sin is while you're still a sinner, receive God's love. While you're still a sinner, move into the light of God's word and Jesus' presence. While you're still a a sinner, receive the love of other believers. You know, God tells me to love. But if you're not willing to receive my love, I can't do it. If you're not willing to receive a gift with thanksgiving, if you're not willing to receive an invitation or something... You're stopping the other person from doing what God told them to do. It's both sides. Receive love. Give love. It's not about owing one another anything. It's about bringing one another into the light of God's presence. Stop fighting sin. We're all sinners. Let us help one another into Jesus' presence. Even while we're sinners. Because in the presence of God's Son, sin has no power. So how are you going to fight it? You've got to take the, you know, the ambush approach. You fight it head on, you'll fail. It's powerful. Just leave it alone and get your life into God's presence. Get your relationship. He's already forgiven you. Don't worry about it. Get into a relationship with Him through one another, through his word, through prayer, whatever you can do, learn from one another. In his presence, sin will be defeated. He'll just turn on the lights and you'll see how ugly it is. You'll want to get it, get it out of the house. That's how it works. That's how you fight sin properly. That's what John's telling us in this gospel. Let's end where we began. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. 
He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share in our joy. Let's sing about it as the worship team comes. Mm-hmm. 